That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halfsies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. From a cultural Bases, yeah, like um, a lot of the times I find it challenging to fit within organisations because those organisations are in a Western um, kind of setting and they're asking you to improve um, the needs of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in what setting they're asking and they don't fit. So when you're saying like, yeah, I'll do it this way and they're not understanding why you're doing it a challenging way when you can just do it like in a much more direct manner. Great to be back with you here as always. I just want to start by expressing my gratitude for our podcast supporters and recent promotional package clients who have really helped us fast track the move to podcast sustainability. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a Supercast member and enjoy some great perks each week or take up one of the few remaining promotional spots on the podcast for the year and reach our growing global audience. Our promotional packages enable us to amplify support for all the amazing purpose-driven work happening out there that's having a real positive social impact and in doing so, it means we can help break even financially and ensure our sustainability. More on this in the show notes. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by the great folk in Neon Treehouse who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. Learn more in our show notes. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Emily Darnett to the podcast. Emily is a newly appointed board director at Family Life. She's a provisional psychologist and is working hard on her PhD in clinical psychology at Swinburne. Emily is a proud Nipaluna woman and grew up on Yugambe country and currently calls the Kulin Nation home. Her current areas of interest are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' social and emotional well-being, social injustices, and minority groups. Emily has some truly unique insights and done great research on understanding the experience of First Nations communities from a social determinants of health perspective, and also understanding the differences between mental health experience of First Nations people and also between non-First Nations broader community groups. Emily is doing so much and has great passion and rigour in her work. She's an amazing leader to keep your eyes on and is doing an incredible job representing herself and her community. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Emily as much as I did. What a thrill to be joined by you, Emily, on this very cold, frosty Monday morning. When when you said you were happy to do an early morning, I did not realise you meant 7am. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Are you tired? Absolutely. (laughs) Good. Well, that makes two of us. Um, I would love to hear a bit about your journey. So like career, life, everything, it's a lot, but maybe a good starting point might be, is there a time you can identify uh, back in the day when you first realised you wanted to become a psychologist or researcher? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think everybody kind of goes through um, a time when they feel like they're experiencing mental health issues or are affected by someone that is. And my um, family have had those experiences. So when I was little, my mum experienced some mental health issues and health issues as well. So they're really contributed to each other and have been prolonged. So she's still experiencing them. I I couldn't help her when I was 10 years old, but now I feel like I have a better understanding and insight to maybe lend some help to people now that I have the training. So that was sort of like the, the clear sort of trigger point of that narrative and like further exploration of that space? Yeah, for psychology specifically and then <laughs> researching um, as part of your tertiary education in um, Australia to get qualified, you need to do an, an honours year, which involves a thesis. And before that, I was like, absolutely not get me out as quickly as possible from university. I need to have a full-time job. And then after that year of doing a thesis, I was like, hey, I actually quite like this and I can really influence some change here. So I added an f- extra year on to my master's to make it a doctorate. That's big. And so do you, do you have you thought much about like academia and whether that's a, a space you want to be in? Yeah, it definitely is um, a space I want to be in because it is somewhere that I can influence change. Mm. It's not a lot of it's, – it's somewhere that not a lot of Aboriginal people are mm. in. So um, having the cultural background that I have and having the knowledge and expertise that I'm trying to get, um, I really feel like I'll be able to, yeah, make, make a bit of a difference at least to some students coming up and some systems hopefully. It's really interesting you say that. I mean I can imagine a time when someone wouldn't go into academia or research um, because they couldn't feel that they could make a difference but now is like the time of the empowered individual with, you know, research but also amplified by Twitter, social media, website presence and, and this kind of thing. Do you feel like now is the right time to be able to make that change as an academic? Oh, I don't know about time. I feel like we're definitely getting more access to things as time continues but um, – I think the people that did it before, well before me have made some great changes as well. They probably faced a bit more adversities, um, but I, I do think like the socioeconomic kind of climate has changed to really put Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander needs at the forefront of people's thoughts. Absolutely. And speaking of that, I mean, tell us a bit about your PhD topic and your thesis and what you chose to focus on for that. Yeah, so it's just about um, Aboriginal and Strait Island people experiencing psychological distress and how clinicians, psychological practitioners might be able to change what we do to better meet the needs of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the communities. Um, so often we find that we're asking Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to fit a system that wasn't made for us. So we're seeing how the system can change. That's really interesting. So in in your research, um, what have you found have been some of the major differences in how we need to approach sort of mental health and uh, even the psychological approach to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people versus others? I think it's um, a lot of what's come up so far is just giving options to community and treating them individually so that when we have people coming to us, we're not assuming that we're not changing our practice. We're also not assuming that we are changing our practice. It's 
giving everybody the choice and autonomy to be able to make their own decisions and asking the questions that you need to ask and trying not to be so fearful about this space because a lot of people are scared about getting it wrong and so maybe it holds them back from trying. Yeah, it's very interesting. It almost sounds like what we do back in the day when I was in consulting, like you talk to the community first and you sort of try and understand their needs before you go in with like a preset model. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of resonate? Yeah, so it's definitely about um, community and their needs. So a lot of the time we enter in with these ideas of like, would this research question help you? Like, do you reckon this would be good? And they're like, no, we actually need this. So that's when we have to get different. We have to get reflexive and be like, all right, that's what we're going to look at because that's the need deemed necessary by the community. So it could be, um, is that sort of like around different things in different communities, like whether it's, um, you know, relocation, past trauma, um, alcohol, violence, is it sort of those types of things or what what kind of shape are you getting from those community conversations um, that makes things different for your approach? Um, A lot of it's around methodology Mm -hmm. of research, what they find um, appropriate and how they feel comfortable um, when we're going to community. So a lot of the times we're offering um, data collection in a range of different methodologies, trying to make everybody feel comfortable, like, you know, groups on telehealth because we're such a diverse community. We've got to really play to all of our strengths. And, yeah, it's really coming in from that strength-based approach, which is really important to us. So are you using some things like a bit of narrative and storytelling type of uh, methodologies or...? um... Yeah, sometimes we're appropriate. Um, So I like to kind of look at it as a convergent kind of methodology. You're taking this westernised idea and changing it to meet the needs of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community and be a bit more culturally appropriate. Yeah. Makes total sense. Um, so you're a proud Aboriginal woman from the uh, Nipaluna lands, mm-hmm. is that correctly pronounced? Yeah. I thought I was doing a pretty bad job there, thank you. Um, how has your Aboriginal heritage sort of shaped your, how you feel as a person, your life trajectory and also your career trajectory? Yes, yeah, so it's actually something I really strongly identify with, being born into um, a westernised community and being raised that way. It's something that I have to fight to identify with often. Um, So being the first one in my family after the colonisation to identify, to avoid all of the stigma and bias that surrounded um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the past, it was really something that is important to me and important to um, my identity. And that's, I think, why I've gone so deep into the research for trying to make change for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community specifically. So can we unpack that a little bit? So did you did your family know about its history and heritage or did were you the first to find out or just the first to sort of want to express that um, that identity? Um yeah, so we definitely knew about it. My mum would make a sentence, throw away sentence, oh we're Aboriginal and I'd be like, that's really cool. So I just took it upon myself to research some more and um, went through the process of like claiming it through um, governments and in universities and stuff like that. So um, I was officially identifying, not just, you know, saying it um, on a social platform or something like that. Yeah, that's super interesting. What's that process feel like as somebody who kind of, were you certain of your Aboriginality or you just you wanted to like have that um, story and, and also does that help you identify which community your lineage traces back to? 
Um, so because of the dark history that has happened for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, it's really hard to trace back the actual mob that we come from. Um, I say the Nipaluna lands, in, which is Hobart in Tasmania, because that's where um, I can trace it back to my ancestor being born. Um, I'm trying to get further. She would then adopted in um, and then I'm trying to get it back further, but it is challenging. Um, this is the 1850s, so. Yeah, wow. Yeah, a bit of um, paper trail, not so oh easy my. to find back then. And so. in Tasmania especially, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do face a lot of challenges sometimes um, being uh, not meeting the stereotype of what some people think you, an Aboriginal person should look like. And so I think that sometimes really um, makes you stronger in your identity because you need to be. And so what does that feel like to sort of feel like you belong but you're also maybe a little bit too white to feel like there's that natural, is that kind of been something that you've had to grapple with or like when you're talking to other mob or other people and connecting with them, is that sort of something that comes up or...? Absolutely. It yeah. is so challenging. Mm. So you, you grapple with it inside internally and then you also experience you do experience some lateral violence from the community. Um yeah, it's it's hard. I've kind of written um a bit of an autoethnography about it being like living in two worlds. They do have a name for us and they call us like two spirited because we do have like a foot in both worlds. We understand um the westernized world and also try and identify within our, our culture. So it's really challenging, but you only get better at it as time passes. And do you sort of start to see like the positives that that can bring to both yourself and community? Like you sort of almost like a bit of a bridge between like two worlds. Oh, that's a nice way to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> definitely try to be bridge-like. <laughs> um, yeah, I can definitely see how that would be a good analogy, but, um, you know, I'm I'm still learning every day about my culture. So um, I think there's, there's on both sides of those bridges I need to do more work to really um, make make a big impact like I'm trying to. Because you've got a foot in both camps or two-spirited, so you said, um, what is it, do you feel like you have a good understanding of how different the life is of like a regular white Australian versus the Aboriginal experience? Um, yeah, from a cultural basis, yeah. Like um, a lot of the times I find it challenging to fit within organisations because those organisations are in a Western um, kind of setting and they're asking you to improve um, the needs of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in what setting they're asking and they don't fit. So when you're saying like, yeah, I'll do it this way and they're not understanding why you're doing it a challenging way when you can just do it like in a much more direct manner, like they they don't understand as well. I don't know if I explained that very well, but I think I might be Aboriginal. <laughs> Face similar challenges in the past, and certainly with um, you know, coming with a different mindset and you know, direct way of thinking, and then you suggested, and it's like, oh, that's not how we do things around here. Mm, it's really hard. You're always having to change and advocate because um, people they might know the history, but they don't understand the culture, or they might know the culture and not have the history, or they absolutely know nothing at all, and they're like, what the hell are you doing? So these are like white people trying to understand Aboriginal communities? Yeah, people I find are generally trying to do their best, but 
it's so hard. Like even for me, it's challenging to try and um, sometimes connect with culture and mm. get more insights and um, have a chat to an elder and get guidance and things like that. So I can only imagine for people that don't have the two spirits, it's it's a bit more challenging to get a foundational understanding. And do you – what's it like connecting with a, an elder and sort of like learning from that rich sort of historical and communal understanding experience? Is that like a special time? Absolutely. It's um, I think something that makes our culture so rich and unique. It's really a lovely experience to do that. Fantastic. Look, not many of us get that opportunity and I think the closest um, – you know, a semi-white guy like myself has got is probably going down to the Koori Heritage Trust and, you know, attending a smoking ceremony and some of these things. And I think we we always wish we could get a little bit deeper, but it's sort of sometimes there's a, there's a sort of like a kind of like opaque barrier there that it's sort of hard to get much closer without feeling, feeling like you're impinging or mm. getting in the way. Yeah. I, I can definitely see why that would happen and I guess that's the fear because you don't know how to be appropriate sometimes you want to know more but you don't know is it is it okay if I go and ask these questions is it okay if I you know do these things yeah totally Um, that's my that's definitely my issue I don't know about other people but like just being part of programs like it's really interesting like to being somebody in their mid to late 30s um i have to say mid to late now because it was 38 recently so <laughs> i can't claim like mid because it's not 37 anymore i think you can yeah i can <laughs> all right well that's great well, this is a good revelation for me <laughs> but um you know you learn so late on about things and you know you don't have enough conversations with aboriginal people and then it just becomes like this I think the less you try and touch that space, the the more estranged you become from it mm. and, like, it's really you just got to burst the bubble a little bit. Absolutely, but I think schools need to do a better job of bursting oh, the bubble totally. for us. They're not... Helping us get to the bursting of the bubble. They're teaching the wrong curriculum, like yeah. the history and stuff like that. It's just insane yeah. to me that this is still happening in yep. 2022. Yeah, and it would also be good, like, to do a bit more depth of understanding around why we do certain things. I know we we have, like, adopted a lot of practices, but, you know, like, um, there's nothing like, like, go to a smoking ceremony for me and, like, learning from a peer, a friend and a colleague in a program is Aboriginal about his history and identity. And then, you know, hearing from elders, like, that was really great and that led me down the path of, maybe I can engage more with this space. Mm-hmm. Um, then I read the book um, Decolonizing Solidarity by, by Claire Lands, which is a really interesting book. I mean, it's a really deep and sort of intense intellectual book about Aboriginal experience mm-hmm. and sort of took myself down that pathway. But I think, yeah, there's so much more we can do and it's really sort of like it is a challenging space. And what I say to people who are who have maybe never spoken to an Aboriginal person or had that opportunity is like, don't pussyfoot around and don't try and step on each, like don't go as though you're sitting around each other. Be curious, be open and just ask questions. And if they're a stupid question, like you get told that, like you wouldn't in any, any other setting, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important to um, highlight how much questions can help everybody's understanding and generally we're happy to answer them and if yeah, if we're not you'll know so yeah you tell us <laughs> exactly yeah um i realized why i went on that rant and that's to talk about the kuru heritage trust mm. and your work there we'd love to hear a bit more about that yeah so i'm um, an observer on their board this year so that's through um a program that they've been i think going joining for five years which is really great it gives um aspiring future board members um 
a taste of what it's like to understand and things like that. So Career Heritage Trust is really great. It's um it's it's really amazing to be able to see how that works in a cultural setting. Um, I already sit on another board, which I'm sure we'll touch on after, and just seeing the difference between the two boards and um you know what and they offer such great services and things like that. It's it's really great to be able to see how they work differently. And as I said, every day I'm growing my knowledge and that's definitely one of the places that's helping me do that. Like as a newbie, like how hard is board governance to get your head around and some of that stuff and like your role and all that? Very challenging. (laughs) I'm still trying. But um, just like anyone learning anything new, like whether it's about culture or not, ask questions. Like I think they're so helpful and generally people recognise that I'm quite new to this space. They love that I'm trying and they're recognize the um the niche that I can help them with I guess and um so they're always happy to help me out and answer my questions along the way you bring incredible like diversity and expertise to a board which is you know it's no secret that um a lot of boards in Australia are um filled by what we call the pale male and stale older dudes Mm. um and, you know, to be a young, uh, dynamic, Aboriginal woman researching um, in the field would just be an incredible asset to any organisation, I would have thought. I like to think so. <laughs> it's, it's always weird when I, like, put a statement. It wasn't really a question. But, <laughs> but I like to... Um... That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halvesies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Yeah, so I definitely like to think that I. But it's important that we help organisations that are truly trying to make a difference, rather than just trying to tick a few boxes. Oh, yeah. Because you find ticking boxes is like often a thing that people like to do. Um, so it's really important to to definitely get an understanding of what the organisations try to do and how you can influence it, and if they give you that opportunity to actually influence, or if they're just wanting you to sit there and tick that box. That is a really interesting thing that you've raised and I have heard people say things like about boards like, oh, we we need a young woman or like we need an Aboriginal person and I sort of think to myself like you're saying that in a very symbolic way. Do you mean that you need a person with those experiences, history and kind of perspective to add to the perspective of the group or are you just trying to get the optics right? Yeah, I think it's different different organisations for different things like a lot Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, we need to be in the room where decisions are being made about us and for us because otherwise it's not appropriate. Um, So sometimes people just want you to be in that room and other times people want you to contribute in that room and I guess that's the difference in the the idea that you need to figure out when when joining a board or an organisation. That's so well said. Very interesting. And so what was it about family life and how do you come across family life? Maybe if you can talk a bit about the mission there and um, why did that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was actually, this is my second year of doing a board observership. My first year was with family life um, and at the end of that 
I made some really great connections with other board members there and I was really keen to stay on and um, be a director on the board. So they voted and I was voted in. <laughs> so that was really great. Um, the Some of the things they're doing there really align with my psychological side of things and they're also trying to understand how they can be more appropriate in their services that they provide because a lot of their clientele are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, males actually. Um, so figuring out how they can be more, um, yeah, adjust their services to better meet the needs of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and make sure that they're culturally appropriate and things like that. Um, is something that they're really passionate about. And I guess that's kind of also where I can help out. So, um, yeah, as an observer, they, they really let me be hands on. So I can only imagine that it's going to just get more as I continue on this board. Yeah, you need to be careful because if you put your hand up for a lot of stuff, you'll, they'll say, go off and do it. Then you might be buried. Yeah. Well, I think that's a bit of a privilege of being <laughs> the two, yeah. the two spirited because I do understand westernized practice. Yep. Whilst also, you can see that coming. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> That's gold. Um, and so this is a sort of like, it's really interesting, like, um, because as someone like with your background experience, like you are making change through your research, through your connections in, in both worlds, but also like at board level too. So there's really progressive change, hopefully, is the goal on all fronts. That's always the goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think about it that way? Is like a diversified approach to sort of influencing change or it's just sort of like I'm going to do this because this seems like – like why did you want to be on a board? For, is, it, is that part of the voice thing or – Yeah, it is, absolutely. I think mm. I have a lot to offer a board and I feel like I can only influence change from – like I can always influence change in whatever I do but I guess the – boardroom is a place where I might be able to do a few more things and um, be able to influence it on like a systematic level in this case or um, and things like that. So the bigger platform I get, the more change is kind of the idea, I guess. Yeah, it's really cool. And I, I think part of the reason I ask you that is because I am a big fan of spending time on boards. Um, I was on two, I'm on one now and it's terrific and it's an organisation around um, empowering disadvantaged youth through uh, hip hop and dance. So very cool. I, I can't dance at all, but I, I think it's really great that they do that and the, the programs are very effective. Um, but yeah, just the, there's not a lot of young people interested in joining boards, I don't think. And, you know, to hear you talk about it the way you do, it's such an opportunity to sort of set the agenda, bring your own perspectives and influence change, eh? Absolutely. I feel like you were saying before, like the male, stale, pale kind yep. of thing. And I feel like that's how we also picture it. Like you have to be older to sit on a board. You have to have certain expertise to sit on a board or things like that when really boards are looking to diversify in all kinds of ways and I think everybody has some certain expertise that they might be able to bring. So it's really important to go out and get those opportunities, I think. Yeah, fantastic. And so do you has this given you a taste of like wanting to do more involvement and like how, how is it with the chair and everything and is it like sort of the type of thing where you think I'm really loving this, I want to potentially be on another board or I'd like to be a chair at some stage? Yeah, absolutely. It's always something that I want to just continue to grow into and um, make as a bigger impact, positive impact as I can. So I'm always looking for more board roles, but at the moment I'm 
got a lot on my plate. So <laughs> it's about balancing what I want to do with what I need to do, yep. I guess. So definitely um, not found that balance yet, but always trying. And yeah, my partner says if I come home with another job, he, he won't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so what's on the plate? So tell us all about the plate and how you manage it and how you get the things right. I know that you've got KHT, you've got the PhD, you've got family life, um, you've got your due to clinical work or practicing? Yeah, yep. yep. So I um, also work for um, an organisation that services the NDIS for their mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've also got coursework on top of that because the doctorate's like a master and MPH, master's and PhD together. So oh night times. It's also an MPH, PhD? Yes. And what was the other one you said? So it's a PhD and a master's. Oh, yeah. So um, I do two years of coursework, clinical psych, clinical yeah. Psych. Yeah, that's... Man, that, that is full on. Yeah, like, and then placements. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, so what? Like, how do you how do you even decide like how to run your day or like? What, I mean, tell, tell us a bit about your time management practices and how you just fit it all in. Yeah, so I often um, get made fun of because I have a hard diary and <laughs> I keep everything in, and that diary is my life. Because so many electronic calendars these days, yeah. I've, I get lost in them. Yeah, because there's so many email addresses to everything, so I have to have a hard diary. And um, that's really it. Like I know in advance what my six months is looking like at uni and I know how much time that, that holds for me. So at, um, I just continue to really plan ahead as best I can. Obviously life happens and I think everybody understands that now, especially after COVID oh, and yeah. having to readjust and constantly pivot. So yeah. um, people are quite, um, I guess, flexible mm. to this. And so obviously the calendar management helps, but like how do you – is it just regular prioritisation? Yeah. So I guess you've got to hit your priorities and often um, a lot of them are with other people. Like, you know, it's easy to go to work because you have to go to work. Yeah. It's what you do when you get home from work yep. is the hard bit. It, it's an everyday not to just slump on the couch and – watch a documentary or read a book, but um, trying to prioritise, you know, the readings for my PhD rather than reading a book, it it does get challenging. And trust me, I've slumped on the couch a few times, but, um, you know, it's just trying to find that balance and also practising a little bit of compassion for yourself. I recently felt the need, (laughs) learnt, I guess, the need to practise self-care at a pretty decent level. Um, So So how do you do that? I'm curious. Uh, well, slumping on the couch, definitely yep. one. It's definitely part of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I make time to walk my dog. It's a big part of it and obviously she needs to be walked by like, you know. It's very therapeutic walking your dog. Absolutely. And just by doing it, um, practicing mindfulness whilst doing it mm. is a, is really nice, just really connecting to nature throughout that um, that walk and, you know, often looking up as opposed to looking down and what's in front nice. of you. I think it's really Really nice. We could all do that more probably in all assets of our life, aspects of our life. Absolutely. Um, I, I highly recommend it. It's something that I get my clients to do. Do you have a meditation practice or you use the mindfulness sort of as your space for that? Yeah, look, I struggle to sit still. Probably why I've got so much on my plate. <laughs> um, so I really try to do mindfulness a bit more because I think it's a, a little bit easier for me personally. Um, I do listen to like a, a meditation whilst sleeping to help me get to sleep because it's hard to switch off sometimes, a lot, all the time. But um, yeah, so that's kind of my balance that I like to find. 
you seem as though you're somebody who gets a lot of energy from your work because it's work that you've chosen and that you want to do. So is that part of the secret to not feeling overworked and burned out? Do something you love, absolutely. And I really notice the difference between the things that I'm doing at the moment that I have to do to, you know, fulfill my university things and the things I'm doing because I love them and I want to do them. And I feel like that's one of the first things we got told when undertaking a PhD, make sure you do something you like because you're spending three years constantly thinking, writing, and talking to people in this area, so you may, you want to understand it and you want to make sure that it aligns with your passions. It's amazing with PhDs how deep you go as well that you just can't really talk to other people much about them. I don't know what it's like with your partner. I can tell you my wife's doing a PhD in electrophysiology and cardiology and I just – she would just she tried to show me these um, charts last night of uh, electrocardiograms and then mapped onto a three D model of a heart, and it was awesome. But also, I didn't understand anything she was saying. <laughs> yeah, so mine I think guess has a bit more of a social aspect to it, so it's probably a bit more understandable yep. by people that don't have a degree in <laughs> any kind of degree or a background in that kind of stuff. Yep. So. Um, That's awesome because, I mean, imagine the conversations and like even pub chats you could have around that stuff. I mean, do you like to throw things around? Not really because people get really anxious in this area sometimes. Um, They can, yeah, be quite fearful sometimes when they make generalised comments. I'll let them know that that's inappropriate but that's also a really hard space to be in constantly kind of like pulling up your friends and family and being like, you like. That's that's inappropriate. It's wow. kind of sitting in that discomfort. It's a lot of pressure. Absolutely. It's challenging every day. It's exhausting. But it's making change on a minimal level, I guess, or maybe on a bigger one than what we realise. I think it's bigger than what we realise. I think there's a lot of impact um, to hearing somebody be told that or, you know, changing their behaviour a bit. Behaviour change is always the goal, right? Mm, it's absolutely. always the start of a longer chain. Um, how often do you hear things that are sort of culturally insensitive or inappropriate just in like general society? Is it like a common thing or is it, you know? Absolutely. It's really? a common thing. Yeah. So um, how often would you have to like say, like just say it's a regular week, how many times in that week would you have to be like, you can't really say that, maybe think about this? Anywhere from like three to ten. Whoa. Yeah. It's, Don't it's say that coming. No, and it's also, you know, you've got some power imbalances in your life where, like, these people are, are maybe your senior, like, or like your manager and stuff, and you know, you're pulling them up and being like, you, you can't really say that, like, and trying to explain where my reasoning is to how we got to this area, and they're not understanding it because they don't align with, you know, the the background that I have, which is fine. Like, you don't have to, but kind of them not trusting me to be providing the best care is really challenging as well because it's not what they know. It's really interesting. And I guess is that emotionally one of the most fatiguing things for you? Yeah, constantly fighting for what I think is right and what I've been taught is right for, um, you know, my clients or my research participants or anything like that. And, um, being told that, oh, that's not how we do it here. It's like, well, it's how you need to do it. <laughs> so rather than trying to change me, let's change your approach, yep. your understanding. Yeah, It's exhausting and it's really draining. Is that a conversation that you kind of just like get better at incrementally over time or do you have to like pick your audience and chat, like tailor the message depending on who it is in your life? Yeah, look, I think it's both. I think I like to think I've gotten better at it because the first time I did it was I basically cried. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, anything would be like maybe an improvement on that. So. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it is about picking your audience, you know. If you overhear someone talking at the pub, like you've got to think about cost and benefit to yourself because it is about protecting yourself a little mm. bit as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when it is someone that you know quite well or that you work with day in and day out and they're also working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients, it's like, all right, let me, let me help you. Like this is why you can't really say that. And then a lot of the times they're like so apologetic and like, you know, that's great that they've learned. And then sometimes you do get those people that don't learn and aren't really willing to learn and that's when you take a bit more of a stern route. So do you decide to disengage at that point or you're just a bit harsher with your kind of pushback? Just probably make it a bit more uncomfortable. Yeah. Sit in that silence. Yeah. Un- let every let them understand what's gone wrong mm. and maybe where it's gone wrong, and you know, yeah, just don't do it in such like an easy way and forgiving if people are actually trying to learn. Take them through. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, how important or how much mentorship do you get at the moment through your life, uh, your networks, your boards? Um, and is that, is that sort of something that it's been important for you to look for some mentorship and direction, both professionally and in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have heaps of mentors, um, some who are Aboriginal and some who um, aren't. And I think it's so important to have people that you feel like you can ask questions to, even if you feel like it's a dumb question. Um, and know that you're going to get a, an answer that is helpful rather than be like, I don't have time for this or anything like that. So it's really important to to pick the people that are that are there and the people that you go to carefully. And I think once you do that, you'll have you'll have a mentor for life. Fantastic. Look, one of the things I found interesting in your guest form that you submitted was your traveling, your your wanderlust. So 55 countries. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so you don't have to name all of them. I can't. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, <laughs> I was, um, I think, eighteen when I first started going a- abroad and things like that. And it started with you know the, the maybe the easier ones like America and England. And then as I got more confident in, I guess, myself and the world. <laughs> I started to go to more culturally diverse countries because that's where my passion is. It's all about culture for me and really understanding how unique each culture is and how beautiful it is because of its uniqueness. Um, yeah, I kind of uh, ran away from uni for during my undergrad for two years and went traveling and things like that. So that's definitely self-care if I've ever seen it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, nothing's as good as a holiday. What was um, the most interesting place culturally that you, you visited? Oh, I love India. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the chaos, but it's calculated chaos. It works all together and I think it's just a really beautifully culturally cultural country. It's amazing. Yeah, I've heard great things about India. I haven't made the trip there myself. I hear – what people tell me who know me is they say you'll be very overwhelmed and you, you might not be able to handle it. Uh, so that's like my cautionary tale against India, but potentially could be like overruled. Yeah, I, I would definitely say give it a crack. Um, I guess I'm someone that likes to be overwhelmed. My senses were tingling when I was there and I think that's what I liked about it so much. Um, yeah, something similar to like Morocco and things like that. You know, it's just so much of a different um, Morocco's intense, eh? Yeah, just with the the sights and like you know the smells and everything's kind of new. I guess it's so diverse from what we're 
used to here in Australia and that's what I like. The the bigger the difference, the better, I yeah. guess. I like to always push myself outside of my comfort zone. So um, countries that I guess are a bit more culturally different do that and I guess... Have you been to Japan before? Haven't actually. That is a worthwhile place to visit. Yeah, definitely. Um, so different. Going there. Like the, probably the most culturally different place on the planet, I would say. You reckon? Uh, in my travel, short travel experience, some people may say India, but, you know, like just like the way they think and the way things are there is just completely different to here. Mm-hmm. So for me it was like a bit of going into the future but also stepping back into the past, really weird sort of mixed feeling. Yeah. But it was cool, very cool experience. Yeah, it's definitely on my list. Yeah, awesome. And so what do you want to – where do you kind of – hate this where do you see yourself question because, I, I mean, I, I don't see myself anywhere beyond the next couple of months really just getting by. But um, for yourself, you know, once you complete your PhD, what would you like to do next? Continue to influence change. Yep. Just a real broad answer to your question because I don't have any plans specifically. Um, I really want to see – where life takes me and what comes my way and be receptive to that and stay in the present at the moment. Um, I think in the future it would be nice to start an organisation that does cater more individually for people's culture that are on the NDIS because they have a lot of um, different backgrounds of the people that, that are on that and it's from what I've seen it's not really been catered to how it needs to be. Um, so, and I think culture is so important to people and their belief system. So I think we need to give it a bit more, a bit more weight in how we treat clients and see clients and what we do with clients and things like that to get a bit of more, a bit better of a understanding. Yeah. Fantastic. What wonderful. And so if people want to connect with you and learn more about your work and everything you're doing, how can they do that? Um, I guess LinkedIn would be the the best way, right? Yeah, definitely on there. And I think I'm like the only one with the last name of Darnett. So you're lucky. <laughs> super easy. You're easy to find, or, or you're unlucky. Yeah, depending on how you think of it. <laughs> yeah, definitely can't hide. But um, you know how many Mike Davises there are on LinkedIn? <laughs> I did search. There's a few. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Yeah, there's way too many. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation, so I just want to thank you for coming down very early on a Monday <laughs> and uh, for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.